Hello and welcome back to How Wrestling Explains the World. I am Nick Bond. I am not joined by David Gibb. I am actually just here to very briefly explain to you what's going on with this episode, what's going on with our future episodes, and where to check us out, both for the podcast and in general online. Uh, so real quick, this episode is the second half of our first episode, which is the Cold War. About the same length as the previous episode, about 50 to 55 minutes. Uh, the reason it is slightly longer is because I included the end of the previous episode into this one so we don't just jump into the deep end of what we're talking about which is uh on this half is going to be more of a focus on the role the cold war played in wrestling storytelling as opposed to using wrestling storytelling to explain the cold war in general most of our episodes will not be two parts though we do reserve the right in the future to split it into two parts for historical events it's much more likely because we have to set the stage for next episode which is the venture brothers which comes out in two weeks we will not really need to do two episodes please send your feedback to at the nixter t-h-e-n-1-c-k-s-t-e-r on twitter uh, don't send it to dave because he doesn't edit the podcast but you can check out his stuff on twitter at dave writes junk uh that's dave spelled a normal way writes spelled a normal way and junk spelled a normal way uh you can also check him out on the wrestling estate you can also check out my other podcast which is let's not talk about work on soundcloud.com slash l-n-t-a-w and you can rate review and subscribe to us on itunes or check us at how wrestling explains dot podbean.com without further ado here is the hell yeah babies once again and then the rest of the episode We, as Americans, really, really hate communism. Like, so much more than everybody else. The book I mentioned earlier, Whitfield, uh, in it, he talks about um, basically one-fifth of the voters in Italy and France are communists. And in America, the same number of people that are in the Finnish, Lutheran, Evangelical Church our card-carrying communists. And this is, like, before any of the stuff with McCarthy. Like, no one was a communist here. Um, there's a bunch of, uh, like, writers from the time who are basically like, we agree that communism is bad. And for all the reasons we talked about, like, all the differences between Stalinism and communism and socialism, which is, like, a completely, to me, a different thing. Like, we, we just hated Soviets and communism so much more than we hated the like more weirdly the more stalinist stuff but also weird re relative to the rest of the world and there's that's there's a couple of reasons for that um one is yalta which made it super weird and that always happens you always after these like giant wars or even small wars when you try to like reconfigure where people should be it never ends well it's kind of like when uh what is it battle bowl when they make all of the guys tag with people they're they're not actually teammates with <laughs> it's a lethal lottery nick that's what it was yeah it was the lethal lottery where they literally just like uh, break kayfabe and are like literally had a lottery to be like oh bob and john are together and it's like bob and john have never worked together before this is going to be terrible <laughs> 
Um, also, Starcade was never the same. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. Oh, Jim Crockett. Uh, <laughs> or was that already WCW? <laughs> uh, I think that was just after it became WCW. They started doing that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and like I said, so in Europe, communism is just like a normal fact of everyday life. But here it isn't. And, and because we have this distance, we can just make it into this crazy boogeyman. Communists can be anything. They can even be a boat. Like, <laughs> and and uh, for Stalinism, like you mentioned earlier, we didn't want to have markets open to communism, but really what we didn't want was Stalinism, which is weird because the Soviets weren't practicing Stalinism. They were just like trying to go along to get along and also um, stockpile as much bombs as they could. Like, let's not act like Russia is like a bunch of sweethearts. Like, I am personally, I think it's fair to say, glad that we won the Cold War. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I understand where a lot of the like anti-communist fever comes from especially when you don't actually understand what communism is and i think we just had a perfect combination of things that made it so like soviet communism was extra bad even though the thing we really didn't like was chinese slash vietnamese slash korean communism and because we can't like it's a cognitive dissonance thing there's almost no in wrestling because this is when you start to see um communist wrestlers like uh, boris malenko Right. Uh, he was in Florida. Yeah, definitely. Florida. He, he had been so for whatever, 10 years previously, he had been named Otto von Krupp and was playing a Nazi, which were kind of stock character heels in wrestling in like, you know, the 50s and 60s, because we all knew Nazis were bad and they were easy to boo. But then literally like during the Cuban Missile Crisis in the fall of 62, he reemerges as Professor Boris Malenko, an evil Soviet. <laughs> Just so good. <laughs> It's just like the perfect, you know what I, it's just the most seamless transition. It really shows you that even though uh, wrestling is kind of stereotyped as lowbrow and wrestlers aren't necessarily thought of as great intellectuals, uh, there is a, a lot of thought <laughs> that goes into this. And they really, the wrestling business has always really just like had its eyes on the newspaper and, you know, its ears to the railroad track, so to speak, just kind of subtly noticing the ways culture is shifting and reflecting them back as quickly and offensively as possible. And I think it really, and I, that's why the most, this to me, kind of the Cold War is the most wrestling thing and re pro wrestling is the most Cold War thing. Like it, they just perfect. You really get to tease out a lot of culture through professional wrestling during the Cold War because of what we talked about just a couple minutes ago with like the epic narrative, we were actively like, if you listen to Reagan's actual policy beliefs versus his rhetoric, he, he's kayfabing the entire, like he, he doesn't like communism. I'm not going to act like, yeah, he was secretly a communism because he wanted to raise taxes on the rich, which is shit you will find if you look up Reagan anti-socialist on the internet is that he's actually a secret socialist. But I think he like played a. I don't think he was playing a character. He understood that. And I, but to go to, uh, before I forget, what I think is interesting about all of this is that there are no Vietnamese or Chinese. There's no Maoists. Like you deal with Soviets all the time. There are. We asked. I asked people. I, I emailed people that I knew knew better than I did, and everybody was just like, "Nope." 
<laughs> there's not did any of them tell you that reading would be your friend <laughs> no 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 i never i never got a response uh, <laughs> since they already had japanese heels we didn't pro- promoters are lazy if nothing else and like they can basically put a hat a, a russian sickle on a headband and put it on a german guy and that or or a guy from let's say montreal <laughs> and and turn him into a Russian. Mm-hmm. Where if you do something like that with a an a person, a, an Asian person of Asian descent, you are just asking for trouble. Like I think that's part of what it was is that, that you couldn't do the like nation swapping that you can do with honestly like white performers. White performers don't really give a shit. Understandably so. Like white people are just white people to white people. Where like. Vietnamese people, I, I would imagine, don't, I don't want to speak for Vietnamese people, I would imagine they're not going to be like, I'll totally play the Chinese guy. Like, fuck that. Like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm Vietnamese, I'm not Chinese. And I, I think that's part of it. But I think a lot of it is that it's just too real. Like, it is too real to have people, your kids are literally going to fight halfway across the world, be in a wrestling ring fighting guys that look like your kids yeah when you talk about needing the distance between the communists we are fighting and the communists we aren't fighting uh i think of the example of the bolsheviks uh from the wwf which was uh, nikolai volkov and boris zukov uh one of whom was actually yugoslavian and the other of whom was from virginia uh but (laughs) but i mean it wasn't just that they were playing communists it wasn't just that they were playing russians it was they were the Bolsheviks, like they had come in a time capsule from from the from you know the revolution. <laughs> you know, there's there's so much distance in there that it's like, yeah, Bolsheviks, whatever. That's just like like you said, it's all about the buzz terms. It's all about being able to label someone like yes, communist, Bolshevik. I know those words are for bad people, but yeah, when you actually when you actually start to invoke you know, the Vietnam War or things of that nature, then you're you're getting into a really dark place. Because, I mean, the Vietnam War was mostly fought by the class of young men who would have been wrestling fans. You know, the senator's sons were not going to Vietnam. Exactly. And they weren't becoming wrestlers either. I think that's why wrestling resonated so much. Because wrestling was had waves of popularity uh, throughout basically the entire 20th century but the 70s is where like it really starts to at least as far as i'm concerned really pick up and develop start to develop as a real viable business for the next 60 years so in the early the late 1940s um the nwa becomes a thing and so what you have is this uh interconnected web of regional promotions all of them are centered basically around local talent like uh, you get some guys from out of town but they're usually like went to the college and played football down the road and those guys have their like each territory has its own title and then you have a traveling world's champion uh selected by a bureaucracy which i think is really funny for anti-communists and then they come to your territory once a year and they defend your belt and sometimes they lose uh so in new york which i think is the one of the best examples just because it's such a clear demarcation between when they were comfortable using communists and when they weren't because I, i i got bored uh, and I went through literally every single match that Cola, uh, that sorry, that Bruno Sammartino, who was the champion in the 1960s in uh, New York, was in. And he doesn't face uh, the Russian bear, Ivan Koloff, who eventually loses 
the title to as a part of a transition to another guy. He's like the 62nd or 64th person that San Martino had faced. Not the 64th match, but the 64th person that San Martino had faced during his title reign. Like, it wasn't like he had this long-standing feud. Communists didn't really exist, exist, at least in New York and a lot of other places, though they did start to come to Florida where, like, you could have a guy that clearly wasn't Cuban playing a Cuban, a Castro sympathizer works in a way that it might not in like Russians inherently don't inherently work in New York. Cuba and Florida actually have like some regional rivalry, I guess you would call it like Russia. People in New York city don't, they care about what Russia's doing, but it's not a thing where like they know people in their town that have been wronged by the Soviets. No, no, no. people from New York hate, hate, hate people from Boston much more than they hate communists. Exactly. But what I think is interesting about Koloff is that at the time, all of these regional promotions, um, not all of them, but a lot of them leaned into the, the like ethnic or cultural identities of the people watching like the fans, obviously. And what ends up happening is because of Koloff and the way he talks and the way he like randomly seemingly beats San Martino, because they only have like five matches before he beats him with like a fist drop off the top rope. Was it in Was it in a Russian chain match? No, it was just a regular match. It's okay. crazy, yeah. Because I know, I know that he did the Russian chain match, which was like the big scary death match gimmick where he had an unfair advantage because he was Russian and it was a Russian chain. I mean, of course, he would always, he would always lose these in spite of the big advantage, right? He'd always lose the other guy over. But I was wondering if maybe they had used that gimmick to to make it seem like he uh, he had more of an advantage against no, San Martino. And I think that's important is that they don't, it's just a random match. He, not random. I'm sure it was a very important match in 1971, but it's relatively random. And what it does is serve as like this idea that at any point the Soviets can come and like attack you in the place you live. Like, uh, I'm just going to play Ivan Koloff's promo about Bob Backlund, which was a couple of years later. But I think it illustrates what Ivan Koloff did really well. And also, for reasons we'll get into, what he did very poorly. I'm going to start by breaking your arm, your leg. I'm out to show the people, Bob Backlund, that you are not an all-American boy. That you're not what all the kids of America should look up to. No. I'm against everything you stand for. And most of all, I'm going to take the belt away from you. What he does well is say, I'm against everything you stand for. Like, that's clearly the most important part of that promo. Yeah, he literally said, I'm attacking your values. (laughs) Bob Baglin in particular, who, even more so than San Martino, is explicitly an all-American boy. Like, he's not, he's decidedly not ethnic in any way. Like, Bruno San Martino is very... uh, like ethnically Italian. He's literally from Italy. Um, Pedro Morales, who gets the title from Koloff, is uh, Puerto Rican? Yes. Um, yeah, he uh, Pedro Morales, uh, who gets the title off of Koloff, is Puerto Rican. Like, this is a thing that they consistently do. And Koloff serves as this, like, punch in the face of your, like, comfort as a person in this, like, ethnic enclave. And And then he starts to, like, push as a danger to like American values as we understand them. And I, I think that that part's great. Um, less great is his accent. <laughs> uh, the the uh, PW Torch columnist, Bruce Mitchell, 
uh, has coined the term Canadian-Russian accent, which I, I, anytime I hear him, I just immediately think, there he is with his Canadian-Russian accent. Yeah, his accent is actually better than his nephew Nikita's, which is not an accent. It is literally just... Yeah. Just saying Nikita, Nikita. He just yells the person's name and then makes a growling noise, essentially. Like, that's like that's not me exaggerating that is what i think the like captions would say if you were to read for his promo (laughs) (laughs) and he's notorious he was notorious for just being a guy who would just and just say randomly like threatening things and include the word russia like one of the clips on youtube that i didn't use though i went through a lot was um now you will feel the wrath of Russia. So you have these like these more uh, ethnic driven and then eventually like American, all American driven narratives in these baby face territories. But there is one baby face territory that we both thought was really interesting, which is the world class championship wrestling. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, based out of Dallas, Texas, obviously mostly known for their super hot, super popular early 80s TV show. But uh, they're really interesting because uh, I, much, I mentioned Otto von Krupp becoming, uh, uh, becoming Professor Boris Malenko earlier. Uh, the, the promoter uh, and owner of World Class during their biggest years was Fritz von Erich, whose real name was, I think, Jack Atkinson. Uh, but he had become Fritz von Erich, a Nazi, uh, in the 50s, I believe up in Canada, I believe in Calgary was where he first became a Nazi. Well, <laughs> where he first began portraying a Nazi, <laughs> I should say. But it's it, so uh, Fritz throughout you know, much of his career uh, portrayed a Nazi. But then in the 60s, he started to buy into the promotion in Dallas. And at that point, he stopped portraying himself as a Nazi and just became local boy, done good, who's a huge sports star. Which was ironic because he kept the name Fritz von Erich. <laughs> so where where it really where it really gets a little strange is uh, during the, the prime of world class in the early eighties, he is pushing his sons, the von Erich boys, who, like you said, uh, with Backlund, were very much portraying all American boys. But, like, if you really start to think of it too much, they're ostensibly the sons of Nazis. <laughs> so, like, here we are promoting the boys from Brazil as, you know, the as, like, the big heroes of our American values. Uh, but what's really interesting, though, is, like, maybe Fritz learned from portraying a Nazi himself that that kind of thing wasn't good because they didn't really do as many Russians in world class as they did in the Northeast or in the other Southern territories like Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas. Though, you know, those territories and New York all had tons and tons of Russians and they really didn't go heavy into that. Like, I don't think Ivan Koloff really ever worked there, or had a major program in world class, you know, and he was kind of the, the, the leader of the fake Russians. I mean, in the later years, they brought in uh, Bam Bam Bigelow and what was his name? It's a masturbation joke. It was like Crusher Yurkov or something <laughs> like that. Uh, but, but, but they brought in Bam Bam Bigelow late on, but for the most part, they did not use Russians as much as other organizations. And to be clear, Texas hates communism, like hates. There is literally, I look this up. There is literally a law still on the books in Texas that you cannot run as a Stalinist. Like you can't technically can't run as a communist, but they define a communist as like what would be commonly accepted now as a Stalinist, which is like a violent advocate for the violent overthrow of the government. 
you can't run for office, but it's literally like a subsection of the eligibility laws for Texas for voting and for running for office is you can't be a communist still today. <laughs> so like, it's not an anti anti communist thing. It's not like there's a secret enclave of like Dallas was really like a hotbed of progressive Bolshevikism. Like you know what I'm saying? Like no. they weren't beat poet. You know what I'm saying? Like no, no, no. Hey, on the other hand, the most of the heels in world class were kind of dangerous others. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you had gentleman Chris Adams who was a snobby English person. You had Skandor Akbar who was allegedly you know a. Uh, swarthy Middle Eastern oil baron. You had the great Kabuki, who was, you know, the, the foreign peril with the painted face. You had Abdullah the Butcher, who's the foreign wild man as well. So maybe in world class, they weren't so much about replaying the Cold War on TV, but there definitely was still a strong message about all American boys fighting dangerous others. Yeah, and let's not forget that the, and obviously it's a different time. I understand that. And I don't necessarily, okay, I, the fucking fabulous Freebirds are Confederates, basically. They're proud rebels. <laughs> Something we don't think about is the ways in which our like wrestling heels dehumanize, though also hold out the opportunity for humanizing uh, like different ethnic groups and stereotypical people, and that like that's okay when it's like punching up. I, I don't want to know if you want to call Soviets punching up, but like. When you're basically like, like you said, like most of the major stars are explicitly others in world class championship wrestling. And the heroes, the yeah, all the heels, all the bad yeah. guys are, not all the bad guys, but all of the others are bad guys, essentially. And all of the baby faces and even the like in between guys are like pretty are like paragons of a specific kind of Americanness that is actually whiteness calling itself Americanness. Exactly. And just the irony, or I guess I should say the aptitude of the person who's kind of the boss here being a fake Nazi. Like, I think it's incredible that, you know, it's like, well, you know, we're not going to get into that whole ideological thing, but you know, as long as we're all white, dot, dot, dot. It's all right. <laughs> Most other meaningful promotions do use Soviets throughout the 70s. Um, Boris Malenko, who we mentioned, who is the son of, the, sorry, not the son, the father of Dean Malenko. There's the Bolsheviks in the WWF. And in Crockett, <laughs> there is uh, a lot of Russianness in the, like, they use, and I think this is really important distinction. They use, especially in the eighties, Russians as a like Russians as heel stock heel characters who were evil and Russian, not evil Russians per se. Does that make sense? Like they didn't, they were, they were failed human beings who were also communists. They, like, Ivan Koloff, if he was, like, a capitalist, he would have been as much of an asshole. But he happened to be communist. Like, I always felt like watching Ivan Koloff, he was just a heel. He was just a bad guy. Oh, yeah, definitely. They were just kind of a, yeah, like you said, a, a clutch, a group of just kind of, like, lousy jerks. Like, I mean, the way they acted wasn't in serious, threatening, grand, you know, there weren't grandiose plots at work necessarily, but it was it was more about them being the kind of like week in and week out villains. Going back to something I said earlier, almost like you'd see on DuckTales. 
that like if there wasn't something bigger for one of the top guys to be doing, they could bump around some of the Russians or they could do an angle where, you know, the Russians triple team them and then they got one of them, then they got one of them one on one and beat them or whatever. But like the Russians were something for the top good guys to be fighting when they weren't in part of something really important. In, in, in the Mid-Atlantic and Crockett and later early WCW. And what's funny is like as the 70s go on and, and, and as like Ivan Koloff and Malenko and a lot of these guys start to become more and more prominent, the Soviets are like not doing that great. <laughs> They're just kind of like, they really, the reason you see a very noticeable spike in the 80s isn't just Reagan. It's that they hit at the end of the 70s, this perfect balance between dangerous and existentially menacing and like not genuinely depressing or like disconcerting. Like he, you weren't afraid that like Ivan Koloff was going to lead the communist revolution in North Carolina. No, it's like, if you're in a relay race, it's like, uh, let's say you and the other team are neck and neck the first three laps. It's like your fans might be cheering you on somewhat, but they're going to be kind of nervously like sitting on their hands. They want to see what's up. You know, they're leaning forward because they're in. But when you see they drop the baton at the beginning of the last lap, then people stand up and are really willing to start cheering you and celebrating. Yeah. I think that was exactly the case. The second we saw the second we saw Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, the second we saw that the Soviet Union had dropped the baton, we were instantly like, all right, let's start, let's start getting every mile out of these tropes while we still can, because people are ready to just open up and cheer the fact that we beat communism. And we're also running out of time to use this before we have to come up with new ideas. And as you said before, promoters are very lazy. There's this thing called collective leadership, basically what happens. Uh, Brezhnev is uh, Leonid Brezhnev. He's like the first, they have a bunch of weird titles. He's basically had the position that um, Khrushchev and Stalin had, but he also has two other, two or three other members of a brain trust. It's, it's called collective leadership. What happens is they um, they can't figure it out. Like they don't do anything really for a bunch of years other than stockpile arms. And because things are going shitty, because, because things are stagnating, they kind of just start like lashing out, I guess would be a nice, like they invade Af Afghanistan, which is not good. Like we're not happy about what's going on with the Russians in a way we hadn't been basically since like 62. Like, we are not happy with the Russians when the 80s starts. So that's part of it. It's not just that we um, look like we can beat them. And it's not just that, like, we are so far removed from all of the actual scary shit that we don't have to worry about. And we can kind of just laugh it off in the way that, like, Fritz von Erich could do so with the Nazis, I guess. But no, that was way closer. Um, it's, it's those things. And it's America's favorite anti-communist gets elected president in 1980. So uh, after we after we boycott the Olympics, we get um, essentially this. And I'm going to play. Do you, do you hear that, Dave? I am a real American. Fight for the rights of every man. I am a Mankind has survived all manner of evil diseases and plagues, but can it survive communism? I'll be right back. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds like the pitch line. That's like the opening line of an infomercial. Just his intonation there. Dave, it is the opening line of an info. Those are literally, I, I don't know if you've had the joy of having to listen to communism, the disease, but uh, Reagan basically did these recordings and he would just like press them as far as I could tell himself. Like, I'm sure he had help. I'm sure he wasn't, like, you know, like, making the actual wax. 
but um there's like these weird um and this isn't to, to dwell on it too much but there's these weird like production inconsistencies and like things that sound like they might be mess ups that clearly if you're in a room just recording something by yourself you're not going to like be able to and it's in the 1950s or 60s so like it's just funny like you said it is an infomercial reagan hated hated communism and he would not shut up about it um (laughs) and and the thing with reagan and and this is what's really interesting about reagan is that his framing is incredibly forceful. Like that thing is literally that that clip is from a thing that's literally called communism, comma, the disease. He refers to the USSR as an evil empire. Like he goes full bore. He hates, publicly hates communism in a way that's we haven't seen since basically McCarthyism, but it's different because he doesn't focus on the people. He focuses on the like perceive what he perceives, I guess, to be the evils of communism and statism and socialism. But like I said earlier with the jokes he tells, there's this weird appreciation of the humanity of the people in communist countries. Like um, the, the jokes thing, he always frames it, always. Every time I ever heard him frame it, he frames it as jokes that the people in Russia make about Russia themselves. Oh, like Yakov Smirnov? Like in Soviet Union, TV watches you. Kind of, yes, exactly. <laughs> that, that he literally is like, oh, well, I've heard this. Um, now this is this is from them. Um, they, they, they have a clear uh, cynicism about their... Co- and you're just like, shut the fuck up. You made up this joke or someone told you it and thought it was hilarious. You thought it was hilarious, so you're putting it in this thing. But... He does it because it humanizes. He's no longer making it about communists being bad people, but communism being a disease. And I, I think because of that, in a weird way, and I say this as somebody who does not like Reagan, I will put it as delicately as I can. I do not like Reagan. I don't like his stance. I had trouble with his taxes. I had trouble with his stance on communism. I had trouble with the stance on AIDS. I do not like Ronald Reagan. That dude is, as far as I can tell, the biggest baby face in American history. At least his legacy has, uh, he has wound up that way. Yeah, and it's because he, like, when you peer people talk about Reagan, and they do it to a lesser extent with Trump, but I think that's only, like, racists who say this. Not to say that all Trump supporters are racist, but all people who would say this about Trump, which is that he speaks to my problems and feels like he's speaking directly to me, and standing up for me is what Reagan did better than basically anybody else in American history. He made working class people, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, believe that he was there for them. And, and he like that to me is so incredible because he's literally like advocating for cutting the taxes of those people's bosses. That's like, uh, I think it was when he was running for re-election, I believe. Some of his early campaign commercials, his people cut them with uh, Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen playing in the background. And uh, I mean, <laughs> rights, rights for songs were a little, a little looser back in the day. So they, And it was the president, right? So they figured, you know, cut the commercial now, ask questions later. So uh, apocryphally, according to legend, Bruce Springsteen sees these commercials on TV and calls the Reagan campaign to be like, don't you understand that those song that that song is about how horrible you are? <laughs> but, but that like that was a song that was about the American working class identity and that 
the Reagan camp, like I said, I'm pretty sure it was the reelection campaign, attempted to co-opt that, even though it was a message explicitly against the philosophy of Americanism that they were espousing. I've always found that to be a beautiful story. No, and that, it's so funny when you talk to Reagan Marx. I'll call them that. They are Reagan Marx. They are Marx. They like are, he won the Cold War. And it's like, even he doesn't think he won the Cold War. The drop in oil prices won the Cold War. But like, I think it's, he gave some people something to believe in literally, but he also, say what you will about him, which I'm probably going to say a lot about Reagan, he won. He really won things. He he won elections. He, I know that sounds stupid, but he really he really did make progress and do things, even if we didn't like the things he did and the things, the ways in which he made progress. And Nick, are you saying are you saying he has a winning brand? Yes, I hate to say it, but like I understand how he had such a winning brand that Trump could tag along on that like make america great again is literally a slogan from a reagan campaign like literally a slogan that trump took and trademarked and said i took it from reagan and i trademarked it which basically means you can sell it on a t-shirt and not have it be <laughs> like that's literally what it is so, that's very pro wrestling right there taking someone else's phrase that they haven't thought to trademark putting it on a t-shirt and selling it yep yeah it's the best thing ever um but yeah so like so I think what's crazy is that like Reagan establishes his himself as a baby face and by extension America as baby faces, even though we're like at the time and he himself is advocating for like a system of lasers that can blow nuclear bombs out of the sky. Like we got to shoot this shit out of the sky, but we're going to cut taxes at the same time. So like, I, I think he is a, a, a Hogan baby face in the sense that he's really probably a heel but he has so many victories that people use as these like touchstones that cultural touchstones, emotional, personal touchstones that he had, he will never not be a baby face. Like there's no revisionist history the way there is with JFK where it's just like, Oh, maybe he was kind of an, it's like Reagan is basically, if you liked Reagan, if Reagan was over with you, Reagan will always be over with you. And if he wasn't over with you, you will always hate him. There's no like turning around on Reagan as far as I can tell. But he's he's also he's also canonized in a certain way that just yeah. makes it almost impossible to talk about him without making some kind of his nod to his quote unquote greatness. Oh no, totally. Um and so and I think Hogan's interesting because like, yeah, he's the all American like his song is I'm a real American, right? But he doesn't really hate communism that much. Like, again, I did the same thing I did with San Martino. I went through all of the matches and he has like a handful of matches with Nikolai Volkov in his entire career. I mean, literally like a dozen over like a six year period. So it's not like he spends a lot of time with Volkov, but he does do this, which I think is interesting. They have a flag match and, and this is the promo that Hogan cuts before the flag match with Volkov on, it should be noted, on national television, on Saturday night's main event, which is the biggest show the WWE was producing at the time. So this is what he says. Well, Hulk, despite your warnings, Nikolai Volkov continues to sing the national anthem and carry the Russian flag. Well, you know me, Gene, that singing's too much. But as far as the Russian flag goes, that's absolutely the limit. I can't stand to see our enemy's flag in the ring. That's why I'm carrying the red, white, and blue, brother. I'm proud of America. I stand for this country, and I'm going to promise you one thing. 
When this fight is over tonight, there's only going to be one flag standing. That's the stars and stripes forever. <laughs> and so, like, he leans hard into, like, he doesn't spend that much time being, like, anti-communist, but he leans so hard into the, like, pro-America-ness of Reagan. Uh, this is from the Real American Music video. Train, say your prayers, eat your vitamins, be true to yourself, true to your country, be a real American. And it's about, like, the greatness of Hogan, that if you strive, if you follow the American dream, if you eat your prayers, say your, eat your prayers, eat your vitamins, say your prayers, <laughs> and, you know, be true to your country, you too can be Hulk Hogan. And Reagan is kind of like that, too. And it's what makes them such effective communicators, despite the fact that they are, Hogan is not a great promo. Reagan is the worst promo I've ever, he is a good quip he's a great conversational politician his speeches are unlistenable like it's so bad because he's he does this weird over-the-top hysterical bullshit but he does it with this like congenial old man voice that makes it just your blood boil yeah i mean his nickname was the great communicator. And I think it's funny that you're saying that he quote unquote, wasn't a great promo, meaning that like his rhetorical strategies really weren't necessarily sound or his delivery wasn't perfect, but he knew how to say the right things and use the right intonations to make people either feel proud in the way that he wanted them to feel proud or feel scared in the way that he wanted them to feel scared. Yeah. He reminds me a lot of like a, a mid-level businessman that knows a, he, I, please tell me if I'm getting the phrase wrong. He's a good fellow. Well met. Like he, he is just like a glad hand in like, Hey, how's it going? Let's, uh, I hope you're all Republicans. Like he says to the die, he famously said to the doctors after he got shot, like, <laughs> Right, right, right. Which is obviously he doesn't give a shit, but he knows there is a joke to be made to make people feel less nervous, less worried. He's great at that. So I, I think it's unfair. And, and Hogan is too. They're very good at getting people to believe in themselves, even if themselves are kind of shit. They themselves, especially Hogan, are kind of shitty people. They're like, it's it's not even a do, do as I uh, say not as I do. It's like I'm going to project this idea of a specific type of unearned American greatness. Like, not that America America isn't great or whatever, but like that there is a certain like we won the Cold War. It's like no, you didn't. Like you didn't. Like it was a lot more complicated than that. Did you help push them over the edge? Yes, but they're like no, we won. We won the Cold War, and it's it's something they do a lot. So the WWE, it, although they do have Russians, aren't a big anti-communist promotion. Part of that, part of that is because they're a babyface promotion. So like, you don't need the villains to be important. You're not going to make a bunch of Soviets babyfaces. So like, that's why you have the Bolsheviks, but the Bolsheviks are like a mid-tier tag team. And then you have um, Jim Crockett, which like, as I said before, theirs is not, their stories are not as, they do not function as surrogates for a story about the American, the greatness of America as much as they are about how dastardly these dastardly these specific russians are hogan represents heroism and the russians represent just like failing to live up to american ideals well it's it gets to what makes you fundamentally a wrestling heel right is the heel at their core is not as good as the baby face not good as in good and evil but is not as good as in is not as proficient is not as good a wrestler 
if all things were equal, the baby face would always win. That's kind of the, the basic psychology of wrestling. And in, therefore, the heel must cheat. And so I think that that's kind of a perfect analog for, you know, like you were saying before, it's not so much that they're Russian and they're a huge threat to us. It's they're Russians and they're not as good as us. Therefore, they must cheat and use dastardly tactics. And they also do a good job, uh, Jim Crockett's productions, uh, I, to watch it. It is really good. Like it is really good, compelling television. It helps that you have literally like outside of the current WWE roster, maybe the most talented, like, roster ever like like you have the four horsemen literally about to start you have what like staying in cola and all of these guys or at least partially during the the four horsemen become a thing in late 85 but at that time actually flair is feuding with koloff and to me in this entire thing i think the person who actually makes the best argument for why america is great is rick flair which i know this is like not news he is the best promo in wrestling history, period. Like, it's unbelievable. I'm going to play the clip now. Dusty Rhodes has come out to help the champion up. And now Ric Flair, slowly, slowly back to his feet. And there you see he picks up his coat. Don't you tell me nothing! That show's not over yet! Call off! Just a minute of your time. You see now, get over here and hold this. I got something to say. And you listen to this. This is America. If I want to get dressed up, it's my privilege. I worked hard to get where I am. If I want to brag, it's my right. This is not a communist country. We are men, women, and we're proud. Come here and call us. You or nobody else are going to come out here, tear up my suit, don't mean nothing. I got closet for But for the insult of jumping on me, Denny, go off. The next time I see you, as God is my witness, you'll be mine. Oh my God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought this was America. Yeah, it, but he does it in a way that, like, I forgot what I compared it to, but it's basically like, I'm not going to bullshit you and say why America's great because we have these ideals and whatever. It's literally like, America allows me to be an asshole, but my ability to be an asshole stops at the edge. Like my free speech, let's say, stops at the tip of your nose. And you have viol- you have violated. Exactly. You're the one that's the problem. America is great because we make it great like we the people make it and it's he's a hard he's like a heel at this point it is but he does such a good job of articulating like an actual argument for america and i i just love it but what it reminds me of and and the reason i played such a long clip is because at the beginning of it you can hear dusty Rhodes helps the champ right doesn't seem like that big of a deal two months later rick flair breaks dusty Rhodes' leg in a cage like it is maybe the most famous heel act in the history of wrestling and he's like helping him out because they got into because rick flair got into a fight with the russians right like 
And it, to me, it reminds me of when we, we cozied up with like third world dictators, <laughs> which we did all the time. Like I mentioned the 1980s uh, with Afghanistan. We gave money to Osama bin Laden. And that's not to say like, oh, America had it coming. But like when you cozy up with dictators, you get your leg broken in a cage. Like that's just what happens. And I think that they didn't. That wasn't necessarily their plan, but I just love the idea that if you write a good story, things will naturally start to like dovetail into each other and like fit this narrative track. And I feel like Russians at this point were perfect for like figuring out where to put the rails to get everything on track. Absolutely. They kind of, it was like, well, it's, um, they were kind of like the ultimate deus ex machina where like if you needed to get somewhere where either uh someone showed that they were a a real lousy piece of shit or where someone stood up in a way that everybody could admire it's like oh look there are the russians they can either side with them to show that they're a piece of shit or they can fight them to show that they you know stand for truth justice in the american way they were a useful plot device yeah and flair actually does in that moment stand for truth justice well, maybe not truth or justice but the american way and i think it's just that sorry it's just like i listened to that promo and like listen to it like four or five times after rick flair is the best like it's so crazy what what's even crazier to me though and this wasn't meant to be a transition but it did make me think of it is that um what ended up being like the downfall of the Soviets in um, Jim Crockett Productions slash WCW is that Nikita like helps be an allegorical. And, and the reason Nikita Koloff, because it's Nikita, Ivan, and Crusher Khrushchev, who is a traitor. Crusher Khrushchev is like a kid from like Georgia. It's Barry Darso. So it's the guy from uh, Minnesota. He's, he's one of the Robinsdale guys. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he's from Minnesota, Minnesota. And uh, he turns into he before he was even i believe in jim crockett productions becomes crusher khrushchev a traitor like his character through the territories was a a, a soviet traitor comes to the the jim crockett productions joins in with koloff ivan koloff the russian bear former wwf champion and nikita koloff who is like goldberg is that the like Basically, he's Goldberg. Yeah, he's always the person Goldberg, Goldberg's most compared to. Definitely. Yeah, so like there's these, there's Barry Darso, who's not that big of a star. Ivan Koloff, who is a mechanic in terms of like getting guys over on the card. And then you have Nikita, who's this huge star in waiting. And when Magnum TA got hurt in the, Magnum TA was an incredibly, for people who don't know, was an incredibly popular performer. Um, who got into a, car, a career-ending car accident that basically left has left him in a wheelchair to, to this day, I believe. Um, when that happens, Nikita Koloff becomes a babyface. And what that leads to is this weird, like, split where it's actual, like, it's one of the few times they actually get into, like, Soviet ideology in any way. <laughs> like, they kind of get into this weird, like, it's almost like an ideological difference that they tried to like gin up a little bit of like that thing in the West Wing when they specifically like mention laws that exist in the real world. It's kind of like, oh, you're trying for like verisimilitude, I guess you would call it. And to me, that's just like the perfect end of the Russian experiment in professional wrestling is the Soviet split in Jim Crockett Productions because it's so stupid. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it, I guess it, it, he talks. I think there's a there's a promo I've heard at some point that he cut. You know, when he when he turns babyface, but he's basically saying, you know, all these years I I feuded with Magnum TA and he was my enemy, but at least he was an honorable enemy, and we always knew where we stood with each other, and you know, uh, we we always took care of our business in the ring, and and he fought like a man would or whatever. So they shifted it from being you know the we were different in that he was a American and I was a communist, but we were the same in that we're both honorable athletes. I yeah, guess. and I think, and that was kind of the big phrase. And thing. I think that's part of what happened with not necessarily we became friends with Russia, but like when the Soviet Union starts to like break down, there's this real like almost pitying that we go through as a country where we're like, ah, god damn it, they're really in bad shape. It's like almost like an X that you break out with and they like get into drugs and you're just like, Oh, that really sucks. Like, and then post 92 post the actual, like when Yeltsin takes power, there's this real like attempt by us to be like, yeah, crazy. Right. Wasn't, wasn't that past 50 years crazy. And the Russians remember the good old days. Yeah. The Russians are like, give us like 10, 15 years to get our shit together and we'll be right back at it. But you got to chill. So, because they have to chill, you lose a lot of the heat of professional wrestling that was like generated by, ironically, the Cold War. Um, so what ends up happening is um, maybe, I think, personally, the dumbest decision in professional wrestling history, which is um, this. Oh, look at those boots. Sorry, I, there's a very, very, very specific reason I kept the last bit of that clip, which is he says all of the shit. He literally says he's a tone, turncoat during an active war. And then at the end of the promo, he mentions the arena, the city and event he's going to be fighting for the WWF title at. Like, it's <laughs> such cognitive dissonance. And... To me, it really misunderstands everything that made Soviets work as professional wrestlers. Say more. What do you mean? Um, well, I guess that, like, the idea that they were just close enough to menacing that it was a problem, that, like, we were, there were real, like, ideological differences that were, like, thoughtful people could disagree about communism. Sure. Where Slaughter was just praising the enemy to piss people. Yes, exactly. Like cheap heat. It was cheap heat. It was the definition what? of cheap heat. And I think what happened is that promoters or the WWF thought that Russians were cheap heat. And it was like, no, it was so much more complicated than that. It was this perfect alchemy of threatening, but non threatening. And 
deep rooted hatreds that allowed us to other somebody without actually making them an other or outside of like what world championship uh sorry world class championship wrestling like other them in a way that like they're brown so they're different so yeah i think i think we got it this is something i want to talk about uh before we get into the last segment of the show uh this episode like i said is going to be different than our first episode but this is also going to be different than a lot of episodes uh, every episode is going to feel slightly different like we're not we're going to have one segment which is uh, i believe we're going with the name thinky wrestling podcast roundup <laughs> yeah. um yeah you should see the titles i have on the script ladies and gentlemen they are terrible puns um but no uh going forward so like next episode will be about the venture brothers but we're not going to go literally episode by episode and be like this is what venture brothers is about where i think with this we had to break down and in historical episodes we're going to do so but i don't want you thinking that it'll be um a bunch of like word facts and there will be no math in most episodes going forward uh but uh for now we wanted to talk about podcasts that to us help get in the mindset of i this is very highfalutin douchebaggery but um wrestling as a critical language to understand understand the world like when we talk about baby faces and heels we want you to understand what that means we want you to also understand how to apply that to the way that you see the world and that's what we mean at least that's what i mean i think david agrees uh, when we say how wrestling explains the world it's not literally like oh this is why the baby faces in wrestling this wrestling promotion were this way it's literally like how does professional wrestling reflect the world it's in and how do we take stuff from professional wrestling and like apply it to our real lives because that happens all the time right is that a fair assessment of what we're trying to do yeah that sounds that sounds fair plus or minus 10 percent. yeah and and i think um that dave has actually a couple of podcasts um specific sections of podcasts right that you wanted to mention yeah yeah, absolutely. So there are, there are tons and tons of wrestling podcasts out there. And what I want to do with this segment, the Thinky Wrestling Podcast Roundup, is this is kind of for our non-wrestling listeners, maybe, who, based on the podcast, maybe want to know more about wrestling podcasts, or for our fans who are already familiar with wrestling, who kind of recognize that there's just too many podcasts out there and are trying to keep up with the best stuff. So I'm just going to be making a couple of recommendations, not of entire podcasts, but just of clips, like individual conversations that I feel like are worth hearing and just kind of align to the way we look at things here. So we're going to kick off the first week of doing this with two recommendations. Uh, the first one is for Down and Dirty with Dutch Mantel. Uh, Dutch Mantel is a famous wrestler and wrestling writer as well, so someone with a really unique and experienced perspective. Um, in particular, we're going to focus on a clip from episode four, which uh, was originally published on January 15th. Uh, it's actually the first little bit of the podcast. It's from the very beginning to about the eight minute mark. And what they're doing is discussing the Alabama Georgia National Championship game through the lens of wrestling. Um, it's really, really interesting. So if you're a sports fan, a sports fan who also likes wrestling, or someone who's just kind of getting into this whole heel baby face thing that Nick and I always talk about. It's something that's worth checking out. Uh, Dutch does call Nick Saban Lou Saban repeatedly. Uh, but other than that, it's a fantastic discussion. So Down and Dirty with Dutch Mantel, episode four, from the very beginning of the podcast to the eight minute mark. Second recommendation is an episode of Killing the Town with Storm and Cyrus uh, from the uh, January 16th edition. Uh, this is Lance Storm talking to Jim Cornette, who is someone I mentioned in episode one. And uh, what you might want to zero in on is from the 12.30, 12 minutes and 30 seconds mark. Uh, 
to about 2030. They really go through a great discussion of the nuts and bolts of wrestling TV. If you're someone who's in TV production or interested in production or how production has evolved over the years, it's a really, really interesting talk. They discuss how one of the last wrestling territories approached uh, television, what the main challenges of marathon TV tapings are today, and the relationship between televised wrestling and live wrestling and how that's changed over the years. So if you're someone who's uh, starting to feel like they might want to dive deep down the nerdy wrestling rabbit hole, I strongly recommend that uh, January 16th episode of Killing the Town from 1230 to 2030. Yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> that's really good. Uh, I'm going to listen to those podcasts. So until next time, uh, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. I don't fault Truman for dropping the nuclear bomb. The U.S.-Japanese war was one of the most brutal wars in all of human history. Kamikaze pilots, suicide, unbelievable. What one can criticize is that the human race prior to that time and today has not really grappled with what are, I'll call it the rules of war. Was there a rule then that said you shouldn't bomb, uh, shouldn't kill, shouldn't burn to death 100,000 civilians in a night? LeMay said if we'd lost the war, we'd all have been prosecuted as war criminals. And I think he's right. He and I'd say I were behaving as war criminals. LeMay recognized that what he was doing would be thought immoral if his side had lost. But what makes it immoral if you lose and not immoral if you win? We'll meet again.